Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. Offense and Defense. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode concerns offense and defense. Before we get into that, a few notes. First off, I know that I had mentioned that I would be investing into the word bearers. I was very much looking forward to that. Well, the wise thing to do when wanting to invest in an entirely new army is to perhaps gather up things from one's old armies that they don't use anymore and sell them off. Which is exactly what I did. Um, Throughout the course of the the years of playing Dark Angels, I accumulated quite a lot of Primaris models, most of which I never touch because being a Dark Angel player, really the only things to concern oneself with is Deathwing and Ravenwing. So what I need is Terminators and bikes or other fast-moving attack vehicles. And in this way, the rest of the things just kind of were taking up shelf space. The same thing with my Adeptus Mechanicus. I'm not playing them anymore. And it's not that I don't like the faction, don't get me wrong, when it comes to the lore, the Adeptus Mechanicus are some of my favorite. But I don't wish to play them on the board anymore, not because of the meta, but mostly because of the fact that uh, they're spiky. (laughs) And... uh, yeah, they, they require a lot of concentration to play and not, you know, jab oneself. And I do have a bit of a bad back. And so elite armies are going to kind of be my thing. Hence, you know, the Terminator-based Dark Angel list and the Word Bearers that will also probably look very similar, just in a slightly different flavor. And then, of course, we have the Imperial Knights, which you don't get much more elite than 11 models of pure solid adamantium. It's, of course, sad to see these models go, the models who I've, you know, I've had for a while and perhaps painted a little bit or, you know, used once or twice and developed some sort of fond feelings for. I know that for the Gene Stealer cult, for instance, because I got rid of that army entirely. I have no more Gene Stealer cult to my name. And in, in part, it's very complete. It's not like, you know, for the Admech, I still have some models that I did not sell, ones that were painted by... My buddy Turkey Feathers, ones that I, I would not sell because of their sentimental value, I suppose. Same thing with some of my Imperial Guard. You know, there were some of those that were also painted by Turkey Feathers that even though I will never play Guard again, yeah, they're nice to have. Nice rem- reminders and a nice uh, piece that has been put together by a buddy of mine. But for the Gene Stealer cult, it was a clean wipe. No painting, a lot of assembled models. 
But the big thing for me with the Gene Stealer cult, and if any of you have played against them or seen the Codex, you'll know that the characters are really cool. Not just in terms of how they interplay with one another and come together to make a really cool synergy on the battlefield, but just the models themselves. Like, I, I really enjoyed the Gene Stealer cult models. Honestly, it was part of the reason I got into the army in the first place was because of these really cool models that they have, and a really cool concept, too. This idea of the workers' revolution that is really just a nefarious Xenos infestation. Hello, Thatcher, England. <laughs> Am I right? Oh. But, again, running into the same problem of it being a horde army, so lots of little models that are very spiky and easy to, to hurt one's hands over when one is already not wanting that in the first place. And so those of you who do play these horde armies, you know, Imperial Guard, Gene Stealer Colts, Orcs, whatever the case may be, y'all's backs are much stronger than mine. Because, ugh, <laughs> maybe it's because I'm getting old. How many old Orc players do I know? So those are some of my the reasons for, for getting rid of those models and kind of going more the word-bearer route. And honestly, before I even looked at the Codex, you guys know, you guys heard me talking about going word bearers even before I looked at the Codex and started to kind of feel out. I wanted to go that direction because of the lore. The more I look through this Codex, the more I go, you know what, the word bearers are probably, if not the strongest, one of the strongest, right up there with the Black Legion in terms of usefulness out of that book. And the Iron Warriors, of course, also look very good, at least defensively. Their offensive capability is... Yeah, and their secondary is also, yeah. But in terms of the the word, and of course I like Iron Warriors, which is the reason I bring them up, just lore-wise, they're my second favorite Traitor Legion. The word bearers just bring something else to the table, something really interesting and very melee-heavy, but also kind of an anti-psyker thing going on because of their ability to just deny mortal wounds. So all of these things contribute to being a pretty darn successful army, or a cool army to build with. And I am looking forward to that. The nice thing about the Chaos Marines Codex also, before I, I know I've been just like beating this point to death, but the nice thing about this uh, Chaos Marines Codex is even though there's so few data sheets, especially when you compare it to like the Space Marine Codex, oh my goodness, like a fraction of a fraction of the data sheets, they're mostly useful. I mean, apart from the things that are just kind of bad across the board, regardless of whether you're Space Marines or otherwise, with even the fewer data sheets that are useful, there's a lot of combinations that we can do. Especially somebody who's playing a melee-based army like the Word Bearers. You know, you've got your Warp Talons, you've got your Terminators, you've got your Possessed. All these dudes who kind of want to get in close. And you can. I, I'm going to experiment with different, you know, more Warp Talons, more Terminators, just kind of going back and forth and see, see some really good combinations working out there. Because, again, the, the simplicity in of itself almost lends itself to a greater complexity. If that doesn't belong in a Sun Tzu book, I don't know what does. Now, there was a part of me, and I don't know if you all have been tempted in the same way, but there was a part of me that really wanted to go Votan instead. I hadn't quite pulled the trigger on this and sent in the models and started buying stuff and was like, you know, maybe I could just get this book and the, you know, the starter set for the Votan models and, you know, well, let's see where it goes. But even though there's so limited, mo there's so few models right now and it's just coming out, I know that because it's a new army, there's going to be a bunch coming out for the next 
like foreseeable future, which means the meta is going to change constantly for Votan for a while because they're going to get, be getting new and exciting things. Uh, Chaos Marines haven't gotten anything new in forever. I mean, they got something this edition, but that was the first in forever, and it wasn't a huge number of things. Dark Angels are kind of the same, even though they're part of the Space Marines. The Dark Angels specialty things themselves didn't gain a whole lot more, other than, like, Outriders and um, Bladeguard Veterans. And then, of course, you know, Knights are, are another one of those unmoving things. So in terms of somebody who does not want to have to be buying new models constantly in the next foreseeable future, Votan is straight out. Despite the fact that they are space dwarves, people, space dwarves. I mean, like space elves are cool. Space dwarves, awesome. So I'm bummed because again, thematically, I love them, but didn't quite make sense for what I'm going for here. And I'm just playing on painting as I build to kind of avoid that problem that I talked about of just having shelves of bare plastic. I'm going to be painting as I build. So before I can use any of this, I have to paint. Before I can even use the, the ones I have, I have to make sure they're painted. That's the rule I'm setting for myself. I don't get to use it until it's tournament standard, which will be nice. That means that I won't be staring at a bunch of blank plastic. Keep it interesting. And mine are not going to be anywhere near as good as TF's, but that's okay. They'll at least be done. And I have droned on for nearly nine minutes at this point about, you know, non-war gaming type things. Well, personal war gaming things, but you all didn't come here to hear me bellyache about Warhammer 40k. We're here to talk about what Klauswitz has to say on offense and defense. Those of you following along at home may have noticed that we skipped a few chapters in order to get to where we are. Offense and defense, this is the first chapter of the uh, sixth book of this particular volume. So each of them is divided into books, and then you've got the books that are divided into chapters. And so the sixth book of On War is defense. And so this offense and defense section that we're going to be looking at here is a preliminary. It's not supposed to be a detailed analysis necessarily of offense, but it's supposed to be talking about defense on its own and as it relates to the idea of offense. That's what we're going to be driving for. But we did skip quite a bit. And the reason that we skipped these things, and when I read off the list, you'll, you'll understand why. I have endeavored to be fairly true to the books that we've read, even plowing through some of the more, you might consider them boring sections, the ones about marches right? The ones about camps, the ones about subsistence, and, and other things that we've talked about quite a bit, and, and sort of relate to the wargaming, but aren't necessarily why y'all are here. And so let's go over these very quickly, and just, again, kind of gloss over them a little bit before we move on to offense and defense, because I still want to talk about them, but not in such a way that we have done so before so many times. Advance Guard is the first one. This is the idea of having troops who are moving out in front of sappers, uh, skirmishers, who are moving out in order to try to pin or fix the enemy. We don't often use this, or at least in, on the smaller fields when we're dealing with physical wargaming, I don't often see the use of an advanced guard. 
and maybe we should. Maybe we should have that uh, that little buffer zone right there. You know, sometimes you do have people, individuals that will go out, but no sort of organization in that way. Uh, some some armies within 40k will absolutely use an advance guard, to, depending on the situation. The word bearers to you know bring them up again might use cultists as an advance guard, some sort of screen or buffer that's there in front to kind of absorb the impact. Or in this particular case, what you know, Klauswitz is talking about is extending our eyes, extending our reach throughout that fog of war to be able to perceive where our enemy might be before we just bumble our entire force into perhaps an advantageous spot that they have selected for themselves. An advance guard is useful, is what we're saying. Having an advance guard can be very useful. Outposts, we don't really deal with outposts a lot because an outpost is a smaller uh, fortification, kind of like a camp, but that you know relays information to the camp as the advance guard is to the army, so outposts are to the camps. And we don't really do that much either. Even in uh, intellectual wargaming, unless we're dealing with like RTSs or something along those lines on the computer, for what we do in terms of board stuff, we don't often have outposts as an important factor on the board. So outposts are just sort of negated out of it's not really useful. Camps, we've talked about that a lot of times, how to keep security in camp, how to keep camps clean. We've talked quite a bit about camps. We don't need an entire chapter on them. Marches, you know, moving from place to place. I think we've all perfected that, especially since we don't have to foot slog from one end of the country to the other. We can just take a plane, like what's flying overhead right now. A perfect example. Thank you for the good timing. Yeah, that couldn't have been better. <laughs> Normally I would have the editor take this out, but it was entirely too perfect for, for that to be a thing. Anyways, where was I? Oh, marches. We don't necessarily have to worry about that as much, especially like they did back in Clausewitz's time, when you're dealing with you know hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands and thousands of men that are having to be moved in good order from one place to another moved in such a way that they are not separated from their squad or their unit or their core. So they have to, there's, there's an organization to it that we just, we don't have to do at the moment. When we, when we come to our battles, it's assumed that the march went off successfully. We didn't care about the mud. We didn't care about the, the weather or whatever the case may be. We have arrived. Mission success. The next one is cantonments, which is like fortifications. Again, not something that we concern ourselves with. I have seen uh, fortifications used sometimes in physical wargaming, but it's not like one side specially has the ability to alter them for their own tactical purposes, which is kind of what, you know, Klauswitz is advising here on the actual construction and uh, use of, of these particular kinds of fortifications. So again, not really useful for what we do. There may be certain sites or certain events that break this rule of what I'm saying, but they're so few and far between that it really, again, whole episode, not so much. Subsistence, we've talked to death about having a proper diet, having good water, and having both in, in decent quantity in order to sustain oneself. Don't need to go into that much more. Base of operations, read camps, next, and then lines of communication, which for us represent the ability to move backwards into a place of safety. For something like Warhammer 40k, some of the scenarios have you going and, and you have to hold a particular objective, like your objective in your deployment zone in order to be uh, considered for 
points, if we'd be able to get command points, and this kind of is the line of communication, which I think is cool, by the way, as an aside. I really think it's cool that Games Workshop started including that because it's realistic, especially for what we're talking about here. But again, doesn't necessarily need its own episode. Moving into our offense and defense now, let's first talk about our conception of defense within the way that Clausewitz is going to define it. Because again, we're not looking at Merriam-Webster right now. I don't think he had Merriam-Webster at the time. We're talking about how he's defining it within the context of, of this book, with his, when it, within his analysis. So again, an exact definition this will not be. This is going to be his definition for the sake of what he's talking about. So what is defense? From Clausewitz's point of view, well, defense is warding off a blow or avoiding it. That seems pretty straightforward to me. I can agree with that, that defense constitutes is either warding off that blow or avoiding it. Either way, making sure that we don't take damage from it. That's the, and that's what is the characteristic sign of it? Like, how do we know that it is defense? Well, there's a state of expectancy. You know, defense is not, by its very definition, proactive. It is waiting. It waits for the hit. It waits for the enemy to come to it. That's kind of the nature of defense. Having a good defense is avoiding taking damage, and you're doing so with a, a state of expectancy, making sure that we are in a place to be, apply that defense properly. And if we, we talk about absolutes, which don't exist in this world or in warfare, but if we were thinking about absolute defense, well, that would completely contradict the whole idea of war. And one might say, well, an absolute defense would be like a country that is under attack. But remember, when we're dealing with Clausewitz's definitions, war is a consensual activity. You have two major players that are entering into this on purpose, with intent. And so understanding this, this defense isn't some nation being picked on by another one in as much as like a, a, a full-scale occupation or something along these lines that isn't resisted. We're talking about two forces that are resisting one another's motion, uh, and, and they're both striving for a positive outcome, right? There's some sort of positive uh, objective for both sides that needs to be attained, and we cannot do this if we're uh, completely on the defensive. So yeah, the idea of war, we're assuming that again, it's consensual, both parties have entered into this war on purpose. And Again, when we're talking about absolutes, there are none. Like I said, there are none in life, as I'm sure all of you have come to realize, and there are none in war gaming, or in war itself, because there is defense in an offensive campaign. If there wasn't, then the energy would be spent, and any sort of ambushes or, or other fouling methods would just completely derail the entire campaign, because defense is necessary. We have to defend our camps, we have to defend our supply lines and our lines of communication. These are defensive activities. So even in an offensive campaign, there is defense. And there is offense in a defensive campaign, because if we're talking about a defensive campaign, we're not talking about absolute defense. We're talking about, you know, people who are resisting an invasion, the difference between conquerors and those resisting them. Offense, defense, conquer, preserve. And so even, even when we are trying to preserve, we still have to conquer. Because as we've discussed in previous chapters, the ultimate goal of any battle, the ultimate goal of any war, is to disable our opponent's ability to fight us. 
to disable our opponent's ability to hit us back or be a danger to us in the first place. And so by using defense in these offensive campaigns, we're able to kind of you know, throw those body blows, weaken the opponent so that our defense is easier so we can preserve better. So this is our concept of defense and kind of how it relates a little bit to offense. We'll get into more of this in a little bit. But before we get into that, let's talk about the advantages of the defensive, of being on the defensive. And as we talked about before, the object of being on the defensive is to preserve, whether it is to simply preserve our army, our political system, economic system, way of life, land, pride at the table, side of the board, whichever it is, we are trying to preserve what we have. Objectively, numerically, the idea is to preserve. And therefore, we need to not be wasting it. That's a, that's a huge consideration, more than the offensive, is that because we are depending on preserving what we have, we have to be sure not to squander it, because that defeats the purpose of being on the defensive. And if we suspend offensive action, because offense, a lot of times when we're dealing with it, because, you know, again, defense wants things to kind of be moving at a slow pace. Defense wants to be able to react. Offense, of course, is trying to overwhelm, overcome. And so when offensive action is suspended, it always favors the side that is acting defensively. Because now that side has time to react in terms of perhaps repositioning troops, changing one's footwork. Whoever's on the offensive gives their opponent the initiative when they cease to be on the uh, offensive. Now, if we're fighting an entirely defensive campaign, that reaction may not be as violent as it would be in other cases. But in this particular case, when we're talking about the advantages of the defensive, again, when we suspend hostilities, that only benefits them. So we've got the advantage of trying to preserve over conquer. We've got this idea of any sort of suspense in that offensive, as costly and expensive as it can be, benefits us. Defensive side also gets the pick of the ground. In most cases, again, there are rare cases or, or very specific cases where an army that is on the defensive does not get to pick the ground. For instance, if a ancient army were to be fording a river and was to be caught on one side or the other in some sort of surprise attack, well then the defenders didn't really have a chance to select favorable ground. The ground was chosen for them by the uh, offensive team moving quickly and trapping them where they were. But for the most part, especially when we're dealing with Clausewitz's time and when we're dealing with the games that we play, the defensive side often is, is going to be able to pick the ground that they are going to take a stand on. And we're talking tactics, which is what we're, we're going to be talking about this episode. Next episode is going to be more about the defensive ideas uh, kind of within a strategic mindset. But in tactics, it is defensive. We can define defensive if we're leaving the initiative to the enemy if we're awaiting their appearance. All of it is conditional on the enemy. If they come to us. And so that allows us to make certain preparations. That allows us to, again, uh, prepare that ground. And select, again, very good ground that operates well with the forces that we have. I mean, after contact, we can make use of uh, offensive techniques, right? 
just because we're on the defensive, we were just talking before about absolute defense not only being unrealistic, but also completely ineffective. So absolutely, we are going to have plans or training up our sleeve in order to do some sort of counter-offensive maneuver after our defense have, has proven significant. Uh, think about the, the Battle of the Little Round Top. There was a smaller portion of the Gettysburg War. And the way that the, originally the defense that the Union had repelling the Confederates was a strong defense. After the Confederate line started to fall apart, with the bayonet charge that went down afterwards, that was offensive. But it was always only done so after that defensive aspect opened up the opportunity. So even though we may be acting defensively again, we're always looking for a way to turn it to an offensive advantage. But we do it without losing our advantages. Remember that there are some advantages that are given specifically to the defense. We do not lose those. We are able to go on the offensive. We still have chosen the ground, for instance, and that's huge. Through these conclusions, Clausewitz leads us to the idea that the defensive form of war is stronger than the offensive. And I would agree with this. And I think most military historians slash scientists would, and, and I think if we all thought about it, we would too. I'm reading the, uh, the Horus Heresy right now, or rather just finished the Horus Heresy, been reading the Siege of Terra. And they talk about the sheer weight of people, the sheer weight of troops that they brought to try to invade Terra, way more than were actually on Terra itself. Because they knew that they would be going up against an ironclad defense. Sun Tzu advises us not to t attack cities, but if we do, to come with overwhelming odds. Because the defense is naturally stronger. If the defense have a time to, you know, dig in, have a time to really familiarize themselves with the ground, come up with plans, they can absolutely overwhelm most things. Far easier to thwart an offense than to try to make one go off well. And so it's always better, at least in Clausewitz's mind, he says that defensive war would be the, the superior form of war. We should try to fight defensive wars or battles when we can. However, comma, fighting a defensive battle is mostly done out of weakness. We wouldn't be doing it if we had the ability to overwhelm our opponent. That just is counterintuitive. You know, if our opponent is attacking us and we have to kind of wait for the blow and anticipate it to either move out of the way or to uh, block it in an efficient manner, then we are already just accomplishing a negative object. Of course, the positive object, moving towards the positive object, as we had talked about episodes ago, is the idea of moving toward our victory, right? Defeating the opponent, taking the objectives, that's our positive object. Defending ourselves may be something worth doing, but it moves us away, right? It moves us away from attaining that positive object. And so if we don't have this weakness, obviously we're going to press forward. If I have numeric advantage and skill advantage, I'm not just going to sit back and wait for the battle to happen. I'm going to go up and stir things up. Go out and try to conquer because we've got the strength to do so. And if we have the strength to do so, it ought to be used. Because again, the defense is, is weaker in this way. It is a stronger thing to do, but the reason is re resorted to is out of weakness. And like I said, it's done until we have the strength of the opportunity to move toward that positive object. It's a temporary situation, or at least it ought to be thought of that way. Just because we are on the defensive doesn't mean we remain on the defensive. 
It's a, a temporary state. Clausewitz has a quote for us here too. This is one that I, I really enjoyed because <laughs> it illustrates this point very well. He says, a war in which victories are merely used to ward off blows while there is no attempt to return the blow would just be absurd. And I agree. And, and one of the things I've noticed, especially with younger fighters, is this constant defense without the offense. Uh, I have many students who come in and they backpedal. You know, they are very good at staying out of sword's reach. They are very good at, at using the distance to benefit themselves in a purely defensive manner. They're not throwing shots at me. They're purely defending themselves. And while this may make me tired and slightly frustrated, it doesn't move them closer toward their goal. Because if I'm not being stupid and overextending myself or moving in such a way or getting cocky, then they're not going to be able to attain their positive object from all the way over there. They have to come and meet me. They have to come and, and actually be a part of the fight, actually be a willing participant in the fight. There's nothing wrong with defending while we're in the fight. Absolutely block a shot that's coming at you. Absolutely dodge the shot or repulse the melee attack or whatever we're, we're dealing with there. Absolutely do that. But also we're looking for a way to change that defensive action into the opportunity to actually strike at our opponent, do damage at them proactively. So let's talk now about how the defense relates to our circumstances for victory, because we've touched on these a, a couple of times, but let's kind of go over them once more to familiarize ourselves. We've got the superior numbers, of course, big circumstance there. We've got our bravery, our discipline, the advantage of the ground, the element of surprise, and then, of course, the attack from several quarters. Who can, who can maneuver in such a way to attack their enemy on more than one front? And for the, for the sake of what we're arguing about here, for the sake of what we're talking about uh, with defense, we're going to ignore some of these factors just for the sake of argument. Obviously, superior numbers is always a game changer. Whether or not it's general or is able to happen in a local numer numeric sort of way, Superior numbers is always going to be a huge factor. We don't need to analyze it within this particular context because we already know how much it impacts the outcome of a battle. Bravery, again, is not something that needs to necessarily be analyzed within this context because we're assuming that the troops are at least brave enough to do what they're supposed to do, to charge when they need to charge offensively, to defend when they need to defend. And then the discipline is also assumed. Is everybody here... <laughs> up to snuff? Are they doing what they're supposed to do? Not just of spirit, but of actual action. And so we're, we're assuming either that these things don't matter or that they're equal, but for the moment, we're going to ignore them as, as factors and focus more on the advantage of ground, the element of surprise, and this idea of attacking from several quarters. Let's talk first about this advantage of ground. And we talk about it in being, yes, primarily, in most cases, nine times out of ten, the advantage of ground is going to go to the defender. Because the defender has had the chance to pick where the ground is going to be. And with this comes a whole lot of advantages. For instance, obstructions can either be selected or constructed. Something that is going to redirect, hinder, your opponent, whether it's using marshes or thick forests, 
to your advantage, covering up one flank, or if it's going out and laying down barbed wire or mines. These are things, these are advantages that are afforded to the defender because they know that their opponent is going to be coming at them and therefore they can kind of build the battlefield in such a way that it will be absolutely 100% advantageous to them. Choke points. We can use these obstructions or other natural features in order to create choke points. And in this way, even if our opponent does have superior numbers, it won't count as much because locally, numerically, they will not be as strong. The use of choke points is, is absolutely vital when we're doing any sort of defense. And it's part of the reason why the defense is considered the superior form over the offense. Because numerically speaking, these choke, choke points are equalizers or massive advantage givers to the defensive. Less numbers are needed to take down more people, which is what we're looking for in a, any sort of attrition-based idea. So the ability to either select or build choke points, that's huge. And concealment is another one. I'm sure there's others, but these are the big ones I can think of. And the concealment, if we're talking sorts of ambushes or you know, making sure that they don't know exactly where the whole of the army is, you know, let's think... Custer and his little last stand, his, his fight with the Sioux Nation. The Sioux Nation may not have been intending, perhaps, to conceal themselves. I'm pretty sure from what I've read that they were basically holding a large nationwide meeting of how to deal with these dudes who were just running all over their plains, killing their buffalo. And then suddenly one of them comes bumbling into camp, is kind of the understanding that I've been given uh, based on the, the different accounts. But they were still concealed. When Custer first started his attack, he had no idea who was attacking a force of such size. And instead, kicked the hornet's nest, as it were, of a, you know, massive nation <laughs> large hornet's nest, and it, it, the, the, the force came down upon him. But even, even without that extreme example, the concealment can be huge, not just if we're trying to do an ambush, but knowing exactly where the army is and exactly what its capabilities can be, where its artillery is, any of that stuff. Concealment is huge. And this is the advantage of ground that is lent to the defense, if they're able to grab it. But as we had talked about before, with the idea of like the river crossing, for instance, if the offense gets this advantage by, um, again, catching them awry, usually it's luck and or surprise, that will give the offense this ability, but they're able to force the battle, perhaps at a disadvantageous position, uh, like a river crossing or backed up to a river or backed up to any sort of other uh, natural barrier that keeps the defensive force from being able to maneuver properly. Uh, for those of us who play our competitive games, edge of the board, boom. If we can kind of make sure that our opponent is up against the edge of the board when we have the greater movement, the offense is automatically at a advantage there. Because again, they depend on momentum. They're depending on the ability to bring all of their forces to bear in an overwhelming force. And so if they're able to do that, if they're able to catch the, def the defensive player kind of on their off foot, literally on their off foot sometimes, then they can turn this advantage of the ground to themselves as well. But as we're talking about concealment and that sort of thing, let's talk about the element of surprise. Surprise, deception, the foundation of war. Whoever gets the element of surprise has a massive advantage in terms of a fight. And if we're talking about the defense, if they get this 
the, the surprise, the advantage of being with the surprise, well, we're looking at things like ambushing, you know, laying, laying low and making sure their opponent walks into where we want them to before we spring our trap, Gene Stealer Cult. Or fortifications, even. Surprising them by being like, oh, we were expecting to go against an army, not a fortified position. Not these various obstacles that, again, were constructed that we didn't anticipate. These elements of surprise, doing things that our opponent isn't going to expect, is able to be done a little bit easier, I think, from a defensive perspective, if we know that our opponent is coming. On the other side of things, of course, the surprise, like we were talking about with the river, can be used to force our opponent into a disadvantageous position. And it's really hard for the for offense to get the element of surprise. It's very difficult because the defense knows where you are. And any good defensive player, any good defensive uh, general is going to be able to survey the area around them, whether it's by pay paying attention or by sending out scouts within like an actual wartime setting, they're going to have knowledge of where their enemy is maneuvering. Hopefully. So in order to get this element of surprise without being able to know exactly where the defensive force is going to be and, and hit them in a, a disadvantageous position, always the element of surprise, if it's going to anyone, is going to go to the defense. And lastly, attacking from several quarters. This is one that favors the offense. Because again, they're mobile. And so they're able to move around. And the offense then is going to be way more capable of getting an encirclement. You know, defense by its very nature is not moving in this kind of an offensive way. And in a lot of cases, particularly in what we're talking about with Klausfitz, they are a fixed point, you know, fixed earthworks or around some sort of city or natural feature is a fixed point that is being defended. And so, obviously, the offense is going to have an easier time getting some sort of encirclement going on, which means that they are going to be far more, at a, at a far more easy position in order to launch attacks from several quarters, you know, coming in and being able to open up multiple fronts in the fight. However, the defense in this particular case is also, again, they have the better position for surprise. So even if the offensive army has attained some sort of advantage from this, you know, the defense could have reinforcements that are able to come out and uh, reinforce the line in a way that was not expected. They are able to react, as we had talked about, like the defense, if they're able to repel their opponent, if they're able to, able to stop their offensive action, why they can hit back with their own. And with it, they are calling the terms for the most part because their opponent is either retreating or in, in route. And in this way, if the defense gets it, it can be absolutely devastating. So if we're looking at these three circumstances of victory that are that we're considering for this, again, we're not talking about superior numbers, bravery, discipline, none of that. We're talking about advantage of ground, surprise, and attack from several quarters. Advantage of ground almost always goes to the defender. Surprise also almost always goes to the defender, unless... We're able to uh, fall upon our enemy when they are not expecting us or not paying attention. And when that happens, especially when we're doing physical wargaming, I know that there are many people who depend on the element of surprise for victory. You know, their opponent not paying attention to where they are and then being able to hit them. So even though we're not going for absolute defense, we do need to at least be safe in our defense. So surprise can go either way, 
but defense has a little bit more of an advantage there. And then attack from several quarters, the offense is going to have the advantage there. So we go back to our original thought of the defensive war, form of war, is stronger than the offensive. Because when we're looking at these three circumstances for victory, two out of three go to defensive most of the time. So as the offensive player, we have to try to figure out how to flip that. But we're not there yet. <laughs> we're going to get to the offensive. Uh, just the, the last idea, though, the last thing I want to say before we go is when we look at world history, when we look at the changing of the meta, as we have talked about, the changing of technology and methods of war, the offense will always make initial gains. They're always going to be the ones to advance first because they're looking for ways to do it better, do it faster, do it stronger. So the offense is always going to make the initial gains, but they are limited because the defense will always be able to catch up. That's the whole point of it, is people looking at a situation and saying, okay, this is how we can deal with this offensive situation. So maybe we're the ones to develop it, right? Maybe we're the ones looking at the Warhammer board saying, I've got the idea of how to overcome this particular offensive move through this sort of defensive action. I know they do that with chess all the time. There are so many different gambits and so many different methods of playing chess that plan for this specific thing. The defense will always be able to catch up. So the offense is really at a disadvantage on a lot of different fronts when we're dealing with this. But let's move on and have ourselves a little chat about offense and defense. Today, we have a real treat because I have not just one excellent person, but two excellent people from Der Marion, my home away from home. Uh, Sir Talon, Dymphna, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Anytime. It's always good to help out and be around and really just talk, you know. I feel that. And I, like I said, I appreciate y'all being able to meet with me, especially after I had to move everything around today. You know how it is. Uh, as uh, it has been quoted often, the best or the plan is perfect until it meets the enemy. And I had a plan today, and it met. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I live. I live at all hours of the night. So perfect, perfect. Well, uh, before we get started about uh, talking about this uh, this concept of defense and kind of how it plays into the the Clausewitz model of war, let's let's hear a little bit about y'all and your your fighting pedigree. Let's start with you, Sir Talon. Uh, hello everybody, my name is Sir Talon. I am the current president of the Realm of Derda Marion in Bellegarde. Uh, I was knighted uh, earlier this month in May, and I've been fighting for nine, nine years now. Yeah, it started in 2013. Uh, I mainly do short red fighting and archery, and those are, yeah, that's just... I don't know. I, I strive for excellence in, in the thing that I do and care about the most. So. And you're currently ABF, aren't you? Uh, no, I am a full member of the EBF now. I actually finished all of our tests and trials, and I'm the local warlord for my area. So I dove headfirst into being, uh, into being a, a, like a leader of this area. Outstanding. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Well, uh, Dymphna, let's let's hear a little bit about your uh, fighting experience. All right. Well, I have also been fighting for nine years. Um, 
I've been on the board of Dirt and Marion, I think six years. This year I've taken a break. Um, I have been Ohms Viking for Thursdays. I'm currently in the unit, The Lost. Um, but most of my fighting, I have been doing sword and board. I also do archery as well. Oh, outstanding. And, and you're, when you're talking about the sword and board, I can, I can speak to that. And there's absolutely a reason I wanted you on this episode. And it's because, as I said before, your shield work has frustrated me many, <laughs> many, many, many times. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yeah, that's, and not just frustrated, absolutely uh, confounded me. Frustrated means that I was able to overcome it easily at some point, and that's not true. <laughs> that's not the true part. Well, um, thank you. I take a lot of pride in my shield work. Well, with good shield work comes good kills, because you can survive long enough to, to make them, right? Indeed. So, uh, talking about shield work, and this, I mean, both of you have done amazingly. You taught me new things about fighting and about defense when I came down there, because, again, Dimfno, you were able to you know, show me things about the, you know, the tenacity and the concentration there that I had not really seen in the same way. And Talon, I still tell this story to like everyone that I meet who talks about quarter stabs, especially if they're talking down about it. And I step in and I'm like, look, I used to as well. I used to think poorly of the quarter staff. And then I went to Dirt Marion and I said that around Talon and he showed me. <laughs> He showed me that I was very, very wrong. He managed to kill me when I had a shield. I thought that a shield meant you were invincible to quarterstaves. I was wrong. So let's talk about defense, you two people who are, who are experts on the defense. What is the point of defense? Like, why, why assume a defensive stance in the first place? Uh, I guess I'll go first. So for me, so that many things can be answering. Uh, can, can be used to answer that question, but for the most part, I would say you want to live. Like, if you want to win, generally, you know, uh, the winning is contextual, but for the most part, you want to be alive. So whether or not you want to be alive to read your enemy, all right, whether you want to be alive to just make it, you know, past the fight, or of that nature, you're just looking to not be hit, not take damage, um, not be harmed. And that is the most common reason that I would think that someone would take a defensive stance. Like, if you're just looking to get through the scenario. So your defensive stance, like I said, can be used to bait out an enemy attack. Your defensive stance can be used to move through a highly aggressive area. But I would say that you take a defensive stance at the very root, for whatever reason, the base reason is I want to live or not be harmed to see through to the next thing and that's why i believe one would take a defensive stance well i don't think that klauswitz would disagree with you that uh that's very similar to something he would say dimfina did you have anything you wanted to to add to that um i think that's a very good way to explain it um for me it has always been to read the opponent and read the field kind of get an idea of not only what's going on with the opponent in front of you but how the field is moving. So, like, to be defensive, to survive long enough to see the flow of battle and see where you can go and be the most effective. Sure, and so what it sounds like to me, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
but it sounds like to me that neither of you are discussing the concept of absolute defense, which is to say that like you're not doing anything aggressive, you are simply sitting there and uh, avoiding the blows or um, you know blocking them or whatever the case may be. What, from, what I'm hearing from both of you is that defense itself is not a, a static state. Uh, it, it's a matter of using it to open up opportunities, right? To do something on the offensive, right? Correct. Yeah, I would, I would say so. So you can, short of like trying to defend a fortress, but even in my opinion, if you were trying to like not be sieged or to defend against the siege, you are still attacking in certain places. It's just that you are not extending past a certain point. You know, once you've pushed the enemy out of the castle, you're not too worried about much else from there but uh i take a lot of uh inspiration in my fighting from star wars obi-wan kenobi is like a master of the d defense form three in star wars is the defense style but obi-wan kenobi had issues actually defeating certain opponents who were like roughly within his skill level right he can't just fight count dooku forever so eventually you do need to strike out to defeat your opponent and right. defeat is contextual but if you just did defend forever this contest never ends well it kind of it kind of throws away the idea of having the the consensual fight which is what Clausewitz defines war as if we're not going to throw a punch then why did we step into the ring on the first place right yeah this is this is not an exorcism and pacifism this this is a fight oh precisely and so when we're, when we're looking at that kind of contextually with, with what we're talking about, Obi-Wan Kenobi is obviously a, a, a fictional character, but he exemplifies, you know, this, this form three that you're talking about. Defense isn't bad, but you can have offense when you're defending. Like if you're running a defensive campaign, somebody's invaded our country and we're, you know, we're trying to, you know, we're running a defensive campaign because of it. That doesn't mean that we're not doing offensive things, right? doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we're not sitting there trying to you know find the opportunities where we can also if we're doing an offensive campaign that doesn't mean that we're not defending right yeah if, if, it, if at any point in time you stop defending yourself you've given into like recklessness and recklessness is not going to help you win the fight in the manner that you might want to whether it be like combat sports or even in like a game of chess. So I'm just gonna, you know, swing out and take as many pieces as possible. And I hope it, you know, it, it comes down to like, just hoping the enemy doesn't take advantage of your recklessness. And that's not, you don't wanna put the, your victory in the hands of your opponent. Well, we're looking to preserve too. It's not just a matter of being able to hit our opponent, but it's also to be able to preserve our own selves. And that's, that's where the shield work I think really comes in handy because you know, if Dimfina is not, like, if you're able to, you know, stand there in the front line and you're not only defending yourself, but also, you know, the spearmen and that sort of thing, well, that, that can only do good things, right? Absolutely. Um, being a support in a fighting sense is very important and often overlooked. So people will want, I want to have the glory of this battle and kill all these people, but sometimes what it takes to really survive the battle is making sure that the people that can deliver the heavy blows to the people that are heavily armored or you would otherwise have trouble with is protected and they get the opportunity to even do that. 
So you're being defensive so that they can be offensive. Correct. I want to set them up for success as much as possible. Oh, perfect. And and that can again that only helps the team achieve victory, which is what all of this is about. Right. And when we're looking for objectives, so let's say that we're defending and we're defending a place. It's not just our own selves. We're not just defending in terms of a, a one-on-one fight. But let's say that we have a place that we need to defend. Uh, there's a few things that really help us out there. You know, we've got this advantage of ground, for instance, which really can, can um, affect the course of a battle. I'm, I'm sure that, especially you guys uh, there in Durdemarian have like that big fort that you set up and everything yeah. too, right? Uh, we used to have it. It's, it's unfortunately uh, in disrepair now, but yes, uh, when we would have castle battles set up, just having walls on your side meant that the enemy, A, had to approach you, and B, had to, pr- had to approach you in very predictable ways. Like, That's right. It's, you can see, even think of the wall as a giant shield. The shield, enemies don't just attack into your shield unless they're like attempting to destroy it or something of that nature. Same thing with walls. If they can't destroy the walls, they have to be predictable. And that defense gave me an avenue of information that I can use when in combat or during the siege or anything of that nature. Well, that's not the only place that it happens either. I mean, that it makes me sad to hear that because I really liked that castle. But there's still scenarios that can be set up with just, you know, being like, okay, well, here's a wall. There may not actually be a wall there, but we're saying that there is... Um, and to still create those those kind of choke points, but what's what's the point? Why go on the defensive and and and, and more more I guess more specifically, what are we hoping to achieve? Like in terms of that castle battle that we're talking about, when your opponent is coming at you, what is the the positive objective that we're looking to achieve? Um, I would say that information is probably the most mm-hmm. important thing. Or the second most important thing that I'm that I'm adopting or looking for while being in a defensive stance. The most important thing is just being alive, obviously. But getting information out of my opponent is it can never be underestimated, especially in a uh, more warlike scenario. The bigger, the more amount of combatants you have, the more information you need. So for like, all right, hunker down for the first you know, day of fighting. So we can see what they're going to do. We can see what they bring. They bring pipe in. Do they bring oil? Do we know what type of siege weapons they have? You know, just how aggressive are they? It, just any information possible is probably the one of the most important things I'm looking for in a defensive stance, be it a one-on-one fight or a grand battle. What about you, Dimna? Definitely the information is paramount. Um... But even finding your opportunities to capitalize on their weakness and that sort of thing a lot of times takes time. And to survive that, obviously, you need a good defense to go about that. Again, if you want to set up everyone else for success as well as yourself, um, gaining that information is absolutely paramount. Well, the more we know, the the more we can defend. Right. Right. The whole point of defense is to preserve, and so if we know, you know like we're saying, where the enemy is coming from, which uh, you know, if we're looking at you know the time that Clausewitz is talking about, that was huge as well, because then you can you know funnel them into these kill points mm-hmm. where all of your artillery and stuff can be coming down on them, or you know you look a a century later and we're talking about mines 
and being able to say, okay, well, you're coming through this choke point. Enjoy the ground being your enemy right, as well. Right, right. And even just finding their established patterns and what they're going to do before they even really set up for it so you can keep them from doing it. So would you agree with Clausewitz? Because in this section, he makes the point that the, the defense is superior to offense if we're talking about you know which is stronger in a given engagement. Would you agree with that statement? Um, I think it definitely depends on the situation, but I do lean towards agreeing with that more than not. Me, Talon? Me personally, if we're going with pure extremes, um, generally it's safer, I will say. that I think that's the, the most fair way I can say it. It is safer to bank on defending yourself than attacking. Uh, there's no way, at the very least in a 1v1 scenario, um, and this is probably true of like greater battlefields as well, there's no way to attack without leaving yourself open. And in just the very nature of, of any attack that you can do, even if you're using like projectile weapons, I have to step out of cover to fire. I can now be attacked. So if the enemy does not care about their life, and I do care about mine, I am open by attacking. And by being purely defensive, I can remain alive. I can remain, you know, as d defended and ready and ready to, to be around. So if we're talking about extremes, yes, defense is stronger if I'm not looking to end the contest in any particular time. Right, and so we're we're like this extreme we're talking about is that absolute defense. We're not looking for the for the strike back in that particular idea, but in in a real uh, fight or in, in one of the fights that we're going to be doing on the field, uh, assuming because uh, I've got students, for instance, and we've all seen this because it's not just blocking, but a lot of new people will just backpedal like there's no tomorrow, mm -hmm. and they will think themselves very good because they are able to evade their opponent and stay alive, but the whole time. The, the opponent who's chasing them is not in any level of threat. They're not overextending themselves. They're not getting sloppy. They're just trying to engage, and the other person keeps retreating. And in this absolute defense, it kind of defeats the pur purpose of war, I think. Yeah, and uh, I believe it was Crea uh, who said that yeah, th this defensive technique is amazing, but unless you decide to attack at some point, it merely just delays the inevitable. So if you're stalling, you need to be stalling for something. If you are not stalling for something, you are simply stalling. And eventually, defenses are broken. All right, so if you just, if, you know, if I'm defending a castle wall and somebody with a hammer will eventually break the castle wall down, even if it's just a, ledge, a sledgehammer, you know, if I'm trying to block forever without ever aggressing on my opponent, something's going to slip through. It's just right. statistics at that point. Well, and to add to that, you can't do it forever. You can't keep that up. Your stamina will eventually die down, and you will get sloppy. Um, so running away forever isn't a viable thing. I would say that running away isn't even defending. Like, that's full retreat. Retreat is not a defensive option. That is removing yourself from the contest. Well, fair enough. 
but even if you're just standing there and I'm going to defend these shots for now until eternity, um, you'll get tired of that. You will start dropping your shield lower than you mean to, and you may not even realize it. Um, you do have to do something um, and keep your footwork up and all those kinds of things. And eventually, if you don't make an advantage for yourself, you, you will just get tired enough that you will succumb. Um, you also allow your opponent to attack more aggressively by not fighting back. If yeah. I never swing at them and force them to defend, then they, like, you know, at, th at that point, they can just start throwing wild attacks, not worried about ever being hit back. Right, so, there's no consequences. Yeah, at, at a certain point, defending yourself is doing even just like a small aggressive action to let your opponent know, oh man, they might swing back. And right. that plays into defense as well. Absolutely. And defense, like you said, is not just blocking, it's not just dodging. But sometimes it is a a probe at the opponent that you don't necessarily mean to defeat them with, but it's just something to let them know, hey, I can do this. So now you have to take that into a, into account whenever you d try to deal your next attack. Right. We're still playing a chess game. Well, there's a difference between hesitation and readiness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, hesitation is saying, oh, you know, do I? Readiness is saying when. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you're looking for the timing rather than just hesitating and, and like I said, backpedaling or just blocking a block. We had this, we had this guy who just joined the realm and like, he is new. When I went up against him, I came back over to the sideline and was like, who is this guy? Why have I never heard of him? There, he's brand new today. And I went, there's no way because his blocking was impeccable against like a flurry. So, I mean, I'm, I'm used to, you know, being able to be like, whack, 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 and hit something somewhere because I've got some good angles. No, this guy effortlessly, like, and, and there was, I had no desire to think that he was cheating because they were the cleanest blocks that I have seen for a while. And it was nuts. Uh, but the problem was he knew all these, these ways to defend, but he couldn't throw a shot. So eventually I learned that all I had to do was throw a surgical strike one that he wasn't going to necessarily anticipate, and then I could get him, but I didn't have to worry about the return shot. So that's what we're working on with him now is is actually throwing the shots, but his defense is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does not need anything there. I mean, that's a, that's a great foundation to go on. Oh, like, yeah. hey, it's really it's really difficult for anyone to kill you. Now we just have to make sure that you can deal some damage. Right. Just in it. Wait. You only ever need to deal enough damage either. Overkill is unnecessary. Yeah. Well, and I had that problem starting out as well. Like, my defense was pretty decent, but my offense needed work. Defense is safer. The preserving is definitely safer, and it's the, the superior of the two forms. Um, but it also it doesn't achieve our positive object, and that positive object being victory. Um, you know, it's, it, it's not necessarily the other direction. It doesn't take away from our victory, because it keeps us in the game, but... You know, it's not nearly as direct as being like, okay, I, you know, I killed you at this point. So who do you think, in terms of surprise, because surprise is exceptionally important when we're talking about anything to do with war, war gaming, fighting, getting, getting your opponent into a position that they did not anticipate is huge for, for anything that we're doing. How, 
how do we do this? And which side, the offensive or the defensive, do you think has the easier time accomplishing the surprise? Accomplishing a surprise? Um, yes. So in my opinion, def- uh, defense has an easier time dealing with surprise. Offense has an easier time actually springing a surprise on something. So, so then I guess my question is, is, is this dealing with the surprise or enacting a surprise? Enacting the surprise. So in, in this terms, like the defense isn't just being absolute defense, but they're coming into this with a defensive position as opposed to the other fighter or team that is coming to, into it with an offensive position, not saying that either of those are absolute or unchanging. Yeah, so yeah, I definitely say that the, the defense has a harder time creating a surprise. Um, any skilled fighter or general, when someone has taken up like you know defensive formations and things of that nature, they're waiting for the attack. They're they're trying to see where it's going to come from, and if you can get them like focused on the wrong thing, you can make a surprise. But for the most part, generally they're preparing. You know, if they were smart, they are preparing a piece of their 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 resources for a surprise or for your attack. So your attack is just a matter of time if if you want to win this contest. So I feel like definitely if you're going to be trying to surprising somebody, it's harder to do so from the defensive option. Do you agree, Dimfna? I disagree. At least in my experience, that hasn't wholly been the case. So, for instance, um, I tend to be more defensive in general, but it is not uncommon for me to walk somebody around the field and they're so focused on attacking me that they'll miss their walking off the side of the world or um, somebody's gotten behind them and I'm just keeping their attention. So for me, I think defensively it's easier. You just have to be smart about what you're doing. Um, Especially also for like I'm setting up this defense and you're not expecting me to go into the offensive. So you make a lot of assumptions as to what I'm going to do or what I'm going to set up, but it is not uncommon for me to come up uh, off my back foot and launch into attacks when somebody's gotten closer. And a lot of times people don't expect that either because I've been so defensive up until that point. You know, I, I think this might be one of those questions where there isn't a right answer, where it comes down to form and and the way that you fight, because I, I agree with you, Dimfna, that the way you fight, absolutely the defensive is the stronger um, and, and the, the more capable of doing surprise. Uh, Talon, I'd, I'd say that you're capable in both. Like, I was about to say that it's more about the offense, and I'm like, do you remember the, the quarterstaff? We just talked about the quarterstaff. Uh, the quarterstaff's amazing, um, especially because no one... I guess the quarterstaff is like a, a decent example. Um, p- the quarterstaff, in my opinion, isn't bad in foam fighting. Just no one has taken the time to figure it out. Like top fighters are looking to win tournaments and things of that nature. No one's trying to figure out, well, how do I take this one weapon that no one's, you know, made into anything and make it good. And I don't do anything but play video games and foam fight. So... I was 100% down to just take some quarter stuff, especially like as a red fighter. I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of red fighting here. There's a little bit of this here. 
and all I'm really looking to do is what are the most common strategies used against me and then defend myself from those. That way I can base my offense on on that. You know, like you in my opinion, you base your offense on your defense. What is what is my opponent going to going to do? Here are the most common ways that sword and borders or two stick fighters aggress on me. Defend myself from those, counter from there. Well, I, I tend to be uh, a little bit more in Dymphna's camp, I think, with the way that I fight, because I, I usually start off on the defensive. I very rarely come in as the, like, straight-up offense attacker. I'm I'm very much a counter... I mean, you guys fought me. You know I'm a counterfighter. Um, and so I'm, I'm obviously, with Klauswitz on this one, I'm like, absolutely, the defense is, is stronger. Now, the number of times that I have Simode with, like, turkey feathers because we've trained together and we're both like, I know where this weakness is in the other person's defense. And we both throw the same shot at the same time or, you know, the shot at the, at the same time. But I, otherwise I agree with you, Talon, um, on the pre previous point that you had made about making sure that, uh, we're protecting ourselves. I, like I have a habit that I know, like if I ever got into a real fight with real weapons of some sort, I've absolutely just really hobbled myself in terms of what I'm going to be able to do because I've gotten in the habit of, of punch blocking with my um, hand that doesn't have anything in it. Like if I'm single blue fighting, I will absolutely punch somebody's sword in order to like get the shot that I want. Yeah, and that, I think that works for our, like our our game allows for that. So I, I honestly believe when people are like, oh yeah, I would mess myself up. And I'm like, I think you would take the, the realness of an altercation of that manner into account a lot more differently, especially if like you're not being completely overwhelmed by the adrenaline and things of that nature. Yeah, as long as your that's muscle true. memory yeah. doesn't take over. <laughs> if you're being mindful. See, that's the problem. <laughs> As somebody comes in and they're like, they start to throw a shot and I'm like, all right, raise up the bad arm. And then like they hit you with a lead pipe or something. And you're like, okay, well, I was in a good position to counterattack, but now I've got this whole broken arm thing to deal with. Right. <laughs> Yeah, there's the uh, there's, there's the the sport versus the real life scenario, which is always like a funny debate. People have, oh, this wouldn't be in real life. I'm like, you do realize we swing foam sticks, right? This is not, you know, <laughs> the the soldier doesn't tell the MMA fighter that he doesn't know how to fight just because he doesn't use guns. It's like, right? You know, it's right. a di different 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 context, different different fight. And it uses the same ideas, right? Like the the way that we do our sword techniques, we can base that on things that we've read before or the styles that have come before us. Like I know a lot of people will, you know, they'll study German longsword or um, the the work of the katana or other other for well, katana I don't think is as useful because that's a slicing weapon. But like kali, like the the stick combat games, oh my word, the the transfer is amazing yeah. to what we do. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's still foam fighting. Yeah, like it it has its own unique stuff. But you can definitely pull from other sources to make a basis, and like, like I said, I, I pull a lot of inspiration from Star Wars. One of the one of the Blade Masters, um, his house is actually a Taru. A Taru is the the fighting style that Yoda uses. And if you go back and watch Yoda versus Count Dooku, Yoda literally flies at one point in that fight, <laughs> and he is floating from one end of space to the other, swinging his sword at Count Dooku. And this person has developed unique footwork and spins and twirls and movement to give so, so that you can be 
a magical space wizard with your foam sword to the to like as you know the most humanly possible manner. So inspiration can come from anywhere, and it changes the meta. And that's I mean that's absolutely one of the things that is parallel with actual military science is that inspiration can come from anywhere, and anything that changes the meta changes the way that everybody else fights as well. Like you know here in the in the West when the idea of using like the the larger round shield coupled with a flail first took off it devastated the field like what could you do against something like that especially like not even the the round shield but also like the door shields were also very common it wasn't until it was like okay well shield kicks or using their shield against them or and there were a bunch of things that kind of came up out of that but originally when that when that took off it was it was devastating, and so I'm glad to hear about this footwork stuff coming in because maybe that'll take off and you know have everybody do it, go into dance class. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, and it also gives into like the different ways that people use to defend themselves. So like a boardman obviously is going to use their shield to defend them to defend themselves, but I am a lefty whenever I fight sword and board, and so that actually changes the defense. I do a lot less blocking with my shield than I do with my sword simply because my sword and your sword are on the same side if I'm fighting a right-handed opponent. So my shield is actually there to simply dissuade you from swinging in certain areas so that the fight is more, you know, on a predictable side. As a red sword fighter, depending on the length of your weapon, you're using your reach to defend you from opponent's attacks. So it isn't just a matter of always like blocking or dodging attacks. Are you are using range to defend you? Are you using a, an implement like a shield or a sword to defend you? Are you using uh, the threat of an attack to defend you? I believe in the, you mentioned German longsword earlier. And so things like the uh, the stance of wrath, or the guard of wrath, which is just kind of like you putting your sword behind your head in almost like a baseball swing manner. And it's like, you know, <laughs> if I have a real sharp sword, I'm going to swing this at you. You just don't want to deal with that. People think, oh, his sword's not in front of him, I can attack. And I'm like, yeah, you could attack, but, like, let's be real here. That's going to be one heavy blow that's coming. Mm -hmm. And I just don't need that in my life right now. (laughs) It certainly does affect uh, what one wants to do in a fight. Absolutely. Which, again, is is half of the point of defense, I think. Uh, Well, I want to keep asking questions. I still have things that I want to ask you guys about, but we've come to the to the end of our interview section but i just want to thank you again thank you so much for you know making the time to come on the show hey i appreciate you uh, having us on the show um it's always glad to be here and thank you all for taking time to listen to us yeah absolutely i enjoy this kind of stuff a lot so thanks for having me on here uh, outstanding and uh well, for the rest of us, we uh, are that's our show for today, but come back next time while we can continue our conversation about Klauswitz and his concepts on defense. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargaming.com podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's 
E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark signing off. Mm-hmm.